Let's pray. Lord, thank You again for the truth we've heard already this morning. We're redeemed and we love to proclaim it. It's amazing that the God who is holy, 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 even the angels cover their faces in the presence of such a holy God. That that kind of God would reconcile sinful people like us to Himself. And we know it's all a gift of grace. And so we're thankful for that grace that has been given to us in Christ. We're thankful that You have loved us with an everlasting love. And though we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, we have confidence in that day. Not confidence in our own righteousness, not a confidence that is in ourselves, but a confidence that is in an alien righteousness, one that comes outside of ourselves, coming from heaven, coming from Christ. And we're thankful that we stand perfect before the throne of God in His righteousness. Thank You for the local church and the privilege of assembling together to sing and to worship and to pray and to hear the Word of God. And now as we prepare to hear from heaven, we pray that You would help us to understand this portion of Scripture and what You're communicating through this passage. Help us to draw out the theological principles, the practical truths, and to live these things out in our lives for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Alright, please take your Bibles and turn with me for one last time to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Today's kind of bittersweet, at least for me. Uh, We've been working our way through this letter for a while. We actually started this on uh, November 17th, and today is August 23rd. And I'm not an expert on math. You can ask Kevin, Keith, and Carol. They'll tell you, by the way I play dominoes, that I'm not an expert on math. But I'm pretty sure that's just over nine months in the book of Colossians, working our way word by word through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And what a journey it's been. It's been such a joy for me to study the Word of God with you each week in my own study to go deep in the Word and draw out the truths of the Scripture and, and have the privilege of presenting, to you, presenting them to you on the Lord's Day is certainly a joy beyond what I can express. And I'm thankful that you all have hunkered down and stood along with me in this journey. It actually began with me teaching you via the Internet, if you can remember that. And now I'm here with you in person and very, very grateful for that. So... With that said, if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 4, and let me read this conclusion to you one final time, starting in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Anisimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha in the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. 
Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, this is clearly Paul's conclusion, and the practical theme I've kind of taken away from the text is that Paul was a man with many friends. Paul was a man with many friends. He couldn't do it alone. He needed help. And so do all of us. All of us need help. We need people walking alongside us in the Christian life, helping us grow, coming alongside to labor with us in the ministry. None of us can do it alone. We all need help. And there are three things that we can notice in the text kind of by way of outline. We see Paul's ministerial companions, Paul's final exhortations, and Paul's closing words. His final, his ministerial companions, his final exhortations, and his closing words. Last week, the last two weeks, we've considered his ministerial companions. We've seen eight men who came alongside of Paul and labored with him in the ministry. Eight of his dear friends, whom he deems his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And we can break those eight men into two categories, those sending the letter and those sending greetings. So far, we've seen Tychicus, a man who was faithful. We saw Onesimus, a man who was restored. Aristarchus, a man who suffered for the gospel. Um, uh, Jesus Justice, a man with a big name to live up to. We saw Epaphras, a man who prayed. Luke, a man who used his talents. And of course, Demas, a man who defected, a man that we do not want to be like. So now this morning we'll finish our examination of this passage by considering his final exhortations and his closing words. We come here to the final four verses. And again, these are verses that people usually just skip over. What are we going to get out of the end of this letter, but there's still many practical truths for us to apply to our lives. So let's look at these verses. First of all, Paul's final exhortations. There are three of them. Paul comes to an end here, and he's kind of expressing his heart to the church at Colossae, and he has a few things that he wants them to do for him. So he gives them three exhortations. One exhortation per verse. So first of all, let's look at exhortation number one, verse 15. We have an exhortation concerning greetings, an exhortation concerning letters, and an exhortation concerning ministry. Look at this first one. Verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. So Paul says, greet the brethren, the saints, the Christians at Laodicea. Tell them hi for me. Tell them I send them greetings. Now I told you before that Laodicea is a neighboring town to Colossae. It's about 10 miles from Colossae. And along with Hierapolis, these three cities made up a tri-city area in the Lycus Valley there in Asia Minor. And uh, Paul had never been there. In fact, Laodicea is mentioned six times in the New Testament. One of those, four of those times are in Colossians. Two of the times is in the book of Revelation. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, we saw that the Laodiceans are mentioned among those who have never seen Paul's face. Paul had never been there. Paul had never been to Colossae, he had never been to Laodicea, he had never been to Hierapolis. He hadn't. He wasn't the one that planted these churches. Uh, more than likely, it was planted by Epaphras, Epaphras, Paul's fellow laborer. So more than likely, most of the Laodiceans didn't really personally know Paul. They knew of him, certainly. I mean, this is the great apostle. They had heard of him, but they didn't personally know him. So Paul wanted the Colossians to greet the Laodiceans on his behalf. And by the way, from the book of Revelation, what do we know about Laodicea? Did things seemingly end well for Laodicea? Lukewarm. Lukewarm, right? 
One of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation are actually addressed to Laodicea. And the Lord rebukes them there for being neither hot nor cold but lukewarm and thus in danger of being spewed out of the mouth of God. So Laodicea becomes a reminder, doesn't it, to all churches. To any church that refuses to remain faithful to the Lord and grows cold, there is judgment that will come upon them. God will remove the lampstand of a perverted and unfaithful church. So may we remember that at Christ is King. May we remain faithful, hot, on fire to the Lord that He might use us and not remove our lampstand. So Paul says, greet the brethren in Laodicea. But then in the latter half of verse 15, he adds this, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Very interesting statement here. If you have a different translation, you might have noticed, Patty, that it says his. His. It reads differently, right? So what's going on here? If you have one of the newer translations, an NAS, an ESV like I have, it says Nympha and the church in her house. Feminine name, feminine pronoun. If you have a KJV like our sister Patty, it says Nymphes and the church in his house. Masculine name, masculine pronoun. So what's why the difference? Is it the Bible's corrupted? Well, no, there are just different Greek manuscripts. We understand that we don't have the original autograph that Paul wrote to the Colossians. We have copies of it, and scribes make what we call scribal errors, right? Interesting fact, there was actually stories in church history about people, scribes, trying to be so careful to preserve the Word of God that they would write one letter, then go take a bath, and come back and write another letter. So these men took it very seriously. But still, in the transmission process and the translation process, we have had some errors creep in. So which is it? Is it Nympha? Is this a guy? Or is it a girl? In fact, some manuscripts even use the word their, their house, plural pronoun. But I think we realize that it makes really no difference, does it? It doesn't matter if it was Nympha or Nymphus, if it was his or hers. We do know that there was someone with a name that started with an N, at least in English, in in uh, Laodicea, and Paul wanted that person to be greeted. So greet Nymphus. Then he adds, in the church that is in his or her house. And that's another statement that might be kind of confusing, a little ambiguous. What is he talking about, about the church in his or her house? Well, there seems to be two possible ways to interpret this phrase. Okay, two ways. The first way to interpret it is to say that Nymphus's home was used for a house church. A house church met in, their, in her home. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, It's well documented in church history that it wasn't until the 3rd century until we get church buildings like we have today. The early church met in homes. And I wonder why why that might have been the case. I wonder why churches met in homes. Uh, You know, there's several possibilities. One is that persecution, the threat of persecution, kept the Christians meeting privately in homes. And that's definitely possible. But uh, if we study church history, we come to the conclusion that persecution was not constant in the first few centuries. Persecution was more sporadic. Even in the book of Acts, there are times where they have peace for a period of time. So persecution wasn't constant. So maybe there's a different reason for which they met at homes. Maybe they met at homes because it was just convenient. Just convenient. Think about it. If you meet in a home, what does that free you of? Financial burden of a building, right? For sure. We know all about that, right? We don't have to pay for a building. Somebody's already paying rent at their own home. We'll meet in their house. And then the church can use its financial resources to pay its pastors and evangelists and support missions, help the poor, and so forth. We can use our money for other purposes. So we can understand why they would do that. 
It was just more convenient. Is that the case today, though? It's not very convenient to meet at home churches today. There are several questions that kind of demonstrate that. One is, where would everybody park? Right? My driveway isn't big enough. Keith's even got a driveway. I don't think that's big enough, right? So where is everybody going to park? Another question to consider is, would anybody, would a stranger be willing to come to your home for church in our culture? Probably not. It's hard to get them to come to a public building, let alone come to a private home. These are just some of the questions that kind of demonstrate the difficulty of house churches in our culture. They're not wrong, for certain. They have beneficial aspects to them, but it's just not very convenient. Some people have actually used this to say that you have to meet at homes because the early church did it. But as Warren Wiersbe points out, where the church meets is really irrelevant. The point is that it functioned the way God has designed. That's what is important. That the church function not like a business per se, but more like a family. A group of people gather together to fellowship and worship God. And of course in the early church, the focus would have been on multiplying. Training people. You have smaller churches that they're meeting at homes. And so the goal is to train people and plant more churches because you need more churches because you can't fit everybody in your building. And so regardless of where the church meets, we need to function like a family and we need to focus on multiplication and planting other churches, right? Being a church that functions according to God's design. So that's one interpretation. What Paul means by the church in her house is that a house church met in Colossae or in Laodicea. But a second interpretation is that Nymphus' house was such a godly home that it was like a little church in the home. Such a faithful family that it was like looking at a mini church. That's a possibility. John Calvin put it this way, When Paul speaks of the church which was in the house of Nymphus, let us bear in mind that in the instance of one household, a rule is laid down as to what it becomes all Christian households to be, that they be many churches. Let everyone therefore know that this charge is laid upon him, that he is to train up his house in the fear of the Lord, to keep it under under a holy discipline, and in fine to form it in the likeness of a church. That's glorious, isn't it? Can people say that about our houses? They're like little churches in the home. Places where the candlelight of family worship is always burning, where God is always central, we're always pursuing holiness. Is that our households? It's great. You see, fathers, you need to realize you already have little flocks in your home. You're already pastors and shepherds in your own home. You need to shepherd your own family. You need to teach your own family the Word of God and lead them to Christ and lead them to godliness. And even mothers, what high callings you have to train your children, teach them the Word, disciple them. What a glorious calling. Our houses should be many churches in the home. May that be said of our houses. So those are two possibilities. Maybe Paul is saying there's a house church meeting in the house of Nymphus. Maybe he's saying that her house is so godly it's like a church in the home. I think it's probably the former. And uh, Paul wanted greetings to go to the Laodiceans and to Nympha in the church in her house. And again, we know Paul didn't plant that church, assuming it was a literal church. It was planted by Epaphras. And so we see again this principle of multiplication. I mean, think about it. Paul never made it to the Lycus Valley. And yet three churches come out as the fruit of his ministry because of men like Epaphras. Paul had poured himself into these people, reproduced himself in these people, And the fruit is that his ministerial impact was multiplied. What a wonderful reality. And that's what we want at Christ as King, isn't it? We don't just want to stay in our little bubble here and and try to get bigger and bigger. Hopefully we do. If we keep getting bigger, we're going to need a bigger building. But 
We want to reach the world. We want to train people and send them out to plant churches throughout New York and throughout America and throughout the world. We want to multiply and reproduce ourselves and others. In a word, we want to be disciples that make disciples and churches that plant churches. That's what healthy churches do. That's what we want to be. And we're thankful the Lord's already given us one opportunity to do that in Tullahoma. So may we be faithful. Look for people in your life that you can walk alongside of and pour yourself into. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your ministries are, you can train them to do the very thing you're doing. Reproduce yourself and others. And we need to come alongside of other churches. Paul did that. Paul didn't just focus on his own little church. Paul planted lots of churches. He loved all of Christ's churches. And here, he expresses his love even for churches he had never been to. Christ as King isn't the only faithful church, right? Everybody feels that way, don't we? We all feel like we're the only faithful Christian and our church is the... Elijah even felt that way in the Old Testament. He said, Lord, they've torn down your altars. I alone am left. And God said, no, I've kept 7,000 men and not bowed the knee to Baal. And so we're a faithful church, but there are others, and we need to love them, pray for them, and wish them well. That's what Paul was doing here. So his first exhortation is concerning greetings. But now there's a second exhortation in verse 16. Look at verse 16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So here's an exhortation concerning letters. Paul says, when this letter is read among you, that's what happened in the early church. This letter that we've been working our way through verse by verse for nine months was to be read publicly before the assembled church in Colossae. That's what they did. They expounded the Word of God just like we do. They didn't do anything differently. That's why we do what we do. The Bible tells us to do it. The early church did it. This was the practice. Take the Scripture, read the Scripture, and expound it in your church services. And that was important, wasn't it, in the first century? Because, you know, one problem in the first century is that many people were illiterate. A lot of people couldn't read or write. And even beyond that, you didn't really have a lot of options. You didn't really have a full Bible in your hands. Most people didn't have copies of the Scripture. They didn't have the printing press in the first century. Everything was copied by hand. We have it easy today. So most people didn't have their own copy of the Scripture. So how did they hear it? They came to church. They heard it read and explained and applied to their lives in the context of of the local church. And by the second century, almost every New Testament book was being read publicly in church services. Justin Martyr, a church father, writing around A.D. 150, gives us some insight into a worship service in the second century. Listen to what he writes. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. In other words, the writing is of the apostles, that is the New Testament, would be read alongside of the prophets, that is the Old Testament, as Scripture. That's what the early church did, even in the second century. Which means that the New Testament was seen as equal with the Old Testament. It was the Word of God. Paul's letters were not just letters from a mere man to a friend. They were words inspired by God. And that's how the Colossians were to receive this letter. This wasn't just good advice from Paul. We didn't spend nine months digging into this text verse by verse because this is just good advice from an old guy. This is the Word of God. That's how the Colossians were to receive it. And that's how we are 
to receive it. And that's why we do what we do here at Christ as King, right? That's why we don't, I don't get in the pulpit and tell you long stories, tear-jerking stories, and tell you about my life, and so on and so forth, because that's not what you need. The Word of God is what we need. That's what the early church did. That's what we need to do. That's why we work our way through Scripture, verse by verse, because it is the Word of God. What makes the people in our culture think that what they have to say is more important than what God has to say? That's what it... That's the commentary of our culture, isn't it? I mean, you got preachers in the pulpit and they're telling 20-minute stories and then they tag 1 Kings 18-13 to the end of it. Hey, I preached today. But we need to hear the Word of God. And so did the Colossians. So he says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. You see, Paul's letters were what we would call circular. They would be written, distributed to a church, and then perhaps a copy of it would be made, and then they would be circulated to other churches, from church to church, and read publicly in their assemblies. And then at the end of verse 16, Paul has this, And for you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now that's a troubling statement. People have spent many, many centuries trying to figure out what letter Paul's referring to there, a letter coming from Laodicea. If you look in your New Testament and go to your table of contents, you'll notice there's no letter in the New Testament titled Laodicea or Laodiceans. So what letter is this? Is this some letter lost in history? Some non-extant, uninspired epistle that was never meant to be preserved and recorded in the Scripture? That's a possibility. Maybe this is a lost letter. But it's also possible that the letter coming from Laodicea is actually in our New Testament today. Did you know that? It's possible that this letter actually is in our New Testament. Some have speculated that this is the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. Now, what in the world would make anyone think that? You're not going to get that from just reading this verse, obviously. But here's why some have concluded that. In the book of Ephesians, in the opening of the letter, in our English versions, it does read, to those who are in Ephesus. But in the earliest Greek manuscripts, those words aren't there. The earliest manuscripts don't actually tell us who the letter is addressed to. So some have concluded that that means it was a circular letter like Colossians and it was actually sent to Laodicea first. Remember, Ephesians was one of the prison epistles. It was written about the same time. That that is what some people think. That maybe he was in Laodicea when he wrote. Very possible. So one option is that. The other option is that it's lost in history. Another option is that it's Ephesians. And the reason I think it might be Ephesians is because whatever this letter is, it's in circulation around the same time as Colossians. It's in the same area. And remember, Paul wrote multiple epistles while he was imprisoned in Rome, right? He wrote Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians and Colossians were both delivered by the same guy. You remember who that was? Tychicus, right? So Ephesians is going around the same time Colossians. They're both delivered by Tychicus. They're both prison epistles. So some have said, this is Ephesians. That's a possibility. It's just conjecture, but it's certainly possible. But what this means then is, because Paul wants the Colossians to even take their letter and send it to Laodicea, and he wants them to get the letter from Laodicea and read it. So what that means is that Paul's letters, though it's specifically addressed to a church initially, have relevance for all of Christ's churches for all time. Colossians was going to be applicable not only to them, but even to the Laodiceans and vice versa. And these are two churches probably dealing with the same heresies, obviously. 
But honestly, we're, we deal with the same heresies today, don't we? We've seen that as we've worked through Colossians. Many of the same Christological errors there are propagated in our day. And so this book is as, re- is as relevant to us as it was in the first century. Paul's letters were not meant merely for one church in the first century. They were meant for all of Christ's churches for all time, even us at Christ as King, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we are to receive it as the Word of God to us. This is the Word of God for us. Warren Wiersbe says, Paul's great concern was that the Word of God be read and studied in these churches. That's the focus. That's the focus. The Word of God must be central to our church service, to all that we do. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul wrote, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. So even 1 Thessalonians was to be read publicly before the assembled church. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul exhorted Timothy, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Read the Word of God publicly. And then he adds, And to exhortation and teaching. But the Word of God is central. If you're looking for a biblical church, one of the very first things on your list is, is the Word of God central to all they do? Is the Word of God preeminent in their church? That's the key. The Word of God is to be read and expounded in our services. Now some say that's boring. That's antiquated. We don't want to hear the, people don't want to hear the Word of God. They'll leave if you do that. You need to entertain them. You need to put on a show. I say if they leave, let them. If the Word of God is boring to you, the problem is not the Scripture, it's your heart. If the Word of God is boring to you, you're unconverted and headed for hell. You need to repent. You need to be born again. Because for true believers, the Word of God is what they want. You know, there's a reason in our culture we have to call people on Saturday and and remind them that church is Sunday and plead with them to come and tell them, hey, I've got my eye on you. There's a reason we have to do that. Because we're trying to get goats into the flock. It's not going to work. Trying to shepherd a goat into a sheep isn't going to work. Christ's people, His true people, want the Word of God. So just stand, preach it, and they'll come. We've talked about what a faithful church growth method looks like. Right? Sean posted something on Facebook the other day. Pray, read Scripture, explain what it means, sit down, and then one more, stay open during a pandemic. That's it. There's your five-step process for church growth. God's people want to hear God's Word. That's why we do what we do. See, the Word of God is the means by which He saves and sanctifies us. You want a fruitful ministry? Preach the Word. Now, the people will flock to these churches where they're telling them about their best life now and every day is a Friday and all these silly shenanigans and slogans, but they're not really growing. They're un- most of them are unconverted. They don't love Jesus. They don't know the Gospel. There's no spiritual fruit because they've cut themselves off from the saving and sanctifying means of grace that is the Word of God. We want fruitful church and ministry, and therefore the Word is central. That's why we do what we do here. Have you noticed our service? What we do? Sing the Word. Read the Word. There's an Old Testament Scripture reading, a New Testament Scripture reading. That's why I preach the Bible verse by verse every Lord's Day to you and we spend nine months on one book because every word is inspired, every word is profitable, and therefore it deserves attention to detail. We need every bit of it. That's why we do what we do on Wednesdays. We read through the Bible together. 
You don't need to hear what I've got to say. I don't have anything profound to tell you at all, unless it's about football, okay? At all. God knows what to tell you. You need the Word of the living God. Not my stories, not my ingenuity, not entertainment, not go, uh, clowns juggling and horses skipping. You need the Word of God. And the Colossians were to receive Paul's letter as just that, as divine Scripture. So that's his exhortation concerning letters. But there's one more here. There's an exhortation concerning ministry. Look at verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So this is really an exhortation to Archippus through the Colossians. Paul has something to say to this man named Archippus. And who is that guy? Well, it seems obvious from reading the text that he's probably a member at the church at Colossae. That's why he's telling the Colossians to tell him something, because he's there in their midst. But he's mentioned in one other place in the Bible, in the book of Philemon. Turn there with me for a minute. To the book of Philemon. Just a few pages to the right. It's in between Hebrews and Titus. One little chapter. Don't turn too fast. And in the book of Philemon, we read a little bit more about Archippus. And for the sake of context, I'll start in verse 1. Now we can hear everyone struggling to find the one chapter book that is Philemon. <laughs> it's in between Titus and Hebrews. Right there. So if you get to Hebrews, just go back. So Philemon, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, there he is, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So notice there that Archippus is associated with Philemon. In fact, this letter of Philemon is addressed not only to Philemon, but also to Archippus, which tells us that more than likely, since you have a man, a woman, and another man, more than likely Philemon was the father, Aphia was the mother, and Archippus was perhaps their son. And it's possible that they all lived in the same house. And they had a church meeting there in their house. And now going back to Colossians 4 again, uh, we know a little bit more about Philemon because we know that Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And where was Onesimus from? Onesimus was from Colossae, right? Colossians 4 verse 9. And so that means that more than likely Archippus was from Colossae, and some have even said that he was perhaps their pastor, one of their elders there. And that's a possibility. But now what is the exhortation to Archippus? Back to Colossians 4 verse 17. He says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Take heed to it. That means to watch, to observe. He's saying, Archippus, observe your ministry. Keep your eye on it. Fulfill it. Carry it out. Complete it. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That, those, that language of fulfill your ministry. Where else have we heard that? 2 Timothy 4, right? Paul, right after telling Timothy to preach the Word, he says, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. So Archippus, like Timothy, was called to carry out his ministry. Now, what exactly his ministry was, we really don't know. He might have been one of the elders at Colossae. Maybe he was one of their deacons. Maybe he was just an ordinary believer, a member of the church called, like all Christians, to carry out the ministry that God had given to him. 
But it seems likely that he had grown stagnant, kind of lazy, and had neglected his ministry. So Paul tells the Colossians, make sure he gets on it. Make sure he fulfills his ministry. And you know, in the same way, all of us as Christians are called to fulfill our ministries, aren't we? Have you ever thought about yourself that way? We hear that word minister, and what's the first thing that comes to mind? The pastor, right? But in reality, all Christians are ministers. Have you ever thought about yourself that way, that you're a minister? That you're called to the work of the ministry? Because that's true. All of us are called to the work of the ministry. And all of us are called to fulfill our ministry. But before you can do that, you have to know what your ministry is, right? I mean, you're not going to fulfill a ministry that you don't know you're called to. So how can you do that? How can you know what ministry God has for you? You know, some of you think, God, I don't even think that way. I didn't even know I was called to ministry. So how can you figure out what ministry God has for you? Let me see if I can kind of help you in that area. When we talk about our ministries, it's obviously bound up with our gifts. If God has called you to a ministry, He's going to equip you to carry it out. So the first place to look then is to our spiritual gifts. But how do we determine our gifts? That's just as difficult as determining our ministries. Some of us might think, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents to serve the Lord with. If you're a believer, that's not true. You do. Every Christian has spiritual gifts, divine enablements given to them by which they can minister and serve the body of Christ. Let me read a passage to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 4. Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. In other words, God gives us various gifts, but they all come from Him, and He gives us these gifts to carry out certain ministries that also come from Him. But our gifts are given to us to fulfill the ministry. And then in verse 7, he adds this, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one. Every believer has a spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, God has given you a gift by which you can serve and minister within the church, within the body of Christ. So if you want to figure out what your gifts are, you've got to start there. You do have them. If you don't think you have gifts, you're not going to try to figure out which ones they are. So start with the fact that you are gifted if you're a Christian. But secondly, you need to know what the gifts are. You need to know what the options are. Right? If we're going to go buy a car... We need to find out what options are out there. If you're going to use gifts, you need to figure out what kind of gifts God gives. You need to survey the information in the New Testament. And there are many lists given to us, several lists given to us in the New Testament that kind of delineate the gifts to us. Let me read just one list to you. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 6, Paul says this, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use the gift or it differs according to the grace given to us is to exercise them accordingly. Okay? So if you have a gift, and you do if you're a Christian, you need to use the gift that God has given to you. That's simple enough, right? Very simple. You have a gift, use it. Then he gives us a list of the gifts, starting in verse 6. If prophecy according to the proportion of your faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts at his encouragement, in His exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads 
with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So here are some of the gifts. You've got leadership. You've got prophecy, which I think means to proclaim the Word, preach. You have service. You have giving. You have mercy. You have these various gifts that God gives to His people. So we need to know the ones that we have. And whatever gift God gives you, use that gift. But then the question is, okay, how do I determine which ones mine are? So I agree, every Christian's gifted. I see some of these gifts mentioned in the Bible, but how can I figure out which one's mine? Let me give you some steps here. Number one, consider your passions. Consider your passions. What are you passionate about? What do you like to do? A lot of times, what we're gifted at is going to flesh itself out in our passions. So where's your niche? What do you just like to be? What do you like to do? I like to talk, so I'm a preacher, right? Maybe you like to teach. Maybe you like to come alongside of others and show mercy. Maybe you like to serve. But whatever your passion is, that's probably what your gift is. But secondly, in addition to considering your passions, consider what you're good at. What do you do well? What do you do well? For me, it's very easy. I don't do anything well, so I had to become a preacher, right? Spurgeon said, preach if you can't do anything else. That's me. Right? So, whatever you're good at, and hopefully you're better at more things than I am, whatever you're good at, that's probably your gift. But then that brings me to number three. Ask others. Ask others. We're not always the best judge of ourselves, are we? Not always the best judge. So ask others. What do you think I'm good at? And this, where, where do you think this best happens? In the local church, right? Where you're already functioning and ministering. So ask the fellow members of the body. Where, where do you think I'm gifted? What do you think my gifts might be? And then number four, just get busy. Do something. Serve. That's the best way to find out what you're gifted at. Do something. It might be trial and error. You, know, you may have to say, you know what, I tried this, but I'm not very good at it. Now let me do something else. Maybe you try to teach and no one shows up. You're like, ah, probably should try something else. you like me. You try to serve, but you break everything and you figure, ah, I need to try something different, right? So figure out what you're good at by doing things. Get busy. And then, once you've done all that, you've considered your passions, you've considered your what you're good at, you've asked others, you've gotten busy, you've determined your gift, now do it. Use it. Fulfill the ministry God has given to you. Maybe you have the gift of service. So you can serve the church. Be here early on the Lord's Day. Help us set up the chairs. Help us do the Lord's Supper. Help us put hymnals in the seats. Maybe you could go into the community, knock on doors, and find out how you could serve people. Cut their grass for free. and Build a relationship and proclaim the Gospel within your community. Maybe you have the gift of mercy. And so on and so forth. Whatever your gift is, use it and fulfill your ministry. Are you doing that, brothers and sisters? Do you faithfully serve Christ in His church? Do you need an exhortation like this from Paul? Fulfill your ministry? Carry out your ministry? You know, I'm thankful for this church because this is certainly a church filled with ministers. There's no doubt about that. Servants. I mean, all of you just are so busy doing things. You guys make it very easy on me. I remember coming here and one pastor told me that you know, you come to a little church, you're going to have to do it all. You're going to have to make the coffee. And I was already scared when he said that because I don't know how to make coffee. You're going to have to fix the chairs. You're going to have to do everything. Then I come here in my first few weeks, I didn't even give the announcements. I was like, boy, was he wrong. He doesn't know about my church. So I'm thankful to be here where people serve. Let's keep doing that. And if you're struggling 
to find out where you fit in, what your gifts are, come talk with me after the service. I'd be glad to help you determine your gift and fulfill your ministry. So that's what Paul tells to Archippus. Fulfill your ministry. And he's had many good examples, hasn't he? Remember last last two weeks in verses 7 to 14, Paul has laid out name after name after name of these men who had so faithfully carried out their ministries. So Paul says, look, Archippus, these guys are doing it. Now you need to do it. Carry out your ministry. And that's his exhortation to all of us this morning. So that's Paul's final exhortations. But now we come to verse 18, and there's a little tear in my eye as we come to the very end here. And Paul finishes up with his closing words. Look at verse 18. Three final statements here. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Three statements. First, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, why would he need to say that? Okay, we get it, Paul. You're the author. You got your name at the beginning. Why do we need you to say it at the end? Two reasons. First of all, because Paul would often write his letters through an amanuensis, a writing secretary. He would dictate his letter. He would be speaking and have someone else writing down his letter for him. And then he'd get to the very end and he would sign his name as a seal of authentication, a verification at the very end. For instance, in Romans 16, though we know Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? It begins in the very first verse with the word Paul. But in Romans 16, verse 22, we read this. I, Tertius, who write this letter, send you greetings. So though Paul wrote Romans, or though he's the author, yet Tertius is the one who wrote the book. So which is it? Well, Paul's the author. He dictated it through Tertius. So Paul had a writing secretary. But there's a second reason Paul needed to sign his signature at the end. And that is because of the problem of forgery. People would often forge Paul's name. In other words, they would write they would write letters containing doctrinal error, and to substantiate those errors, they would then sign Paul's name at the very end. They would forge Paul's name. This is called pseudepigrapha. It was very common in the first century. So how then could the Colossians receive a letter from Paul and figure out if it was really Pauline or not? How do they, how do they know that this was really a Paul's letter? Well, the answer is he would write his name in a distinguishing way at the very end. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16.21, Paul wrote this. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Paul. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, we read this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. There you go. Here's a distinguishing signature. He had some way to authenticate his letters. And we have that today, right? We have our own signatures. Right? We're all young and we're trying to get out of PE class, so we sign our mother's name and they're like, no, Jamie, that's not your mother's handwriting. We know you can't write that good. Right? And we even have forensic investigators today who can investigate signatures and letters and figure out if they're authentic or not. And so it was in Paul's day. Paul had a distinguishing way by which these believers, these recipients, could determine what was authentic from what was not. But now the question is, what was Paul's distinguishing mark? Have you ever asked yourselves that? I wonder what it was. Galatians chapter 6 might give us an idea. In Galatians 6 verse 11 we read this. 
See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That'll get it done, right? Tertius writes this letter. It's all small chicken scratch. And then at the very end, there's a big name, Paul. And they're like, yep, that's Paul. Right. So maybe that was his distinguishing mark. That's conjecture. We don't know that for sure. But Paul had some way of authenticating his letters. That means that the Colossians could trust this was a letter from Paul. And so can we today. We can have confidence. We didn't spend nine months going through this letter thinking, man, it's probably Paul's, but who knows? Maybe it was written by somebody else. And we know this is Paul's letter. And even more so, it's the words of God through Paul to us. So that's Paul's first closing statement. Now look at this second statement. Verse 18 again. Remember my imprisonment. Remember my suffering, my chains. You know, Paul knew that his circumstances were turning out for the greater greater progress of the Gospel. He figured he was about to be released soon. He counted it all joy to suffer for the name of Christ. In fact, he even considered himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But that did not make it any easier. You ever experienced that? Having a difficult time and somebody says, yeah, God's working it all out for your good. You know, God loves you. His providence is working it out. You know, this is making you more mature. And you go, I know that, but this is still not easy. This is hard. This is hard. That's what Paul said. This is hard. Brothers and sisters, remember me. Pray for me. Remember my chains. And we should do that for those who are suffering, shouldn't we? We should remember the persecuted church. We have brothers and sisters around the world who are thrown off buildings, their heads are cut off, they're set on fire for following after Jesus. That's really happening right now in other parts of the world. We should remember that. Hebrews 13.3 says this, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember them. Sympathize with them. You're in the body. You know what it's like to suffer. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine yourself in their situation. Remember them. And we think of John MacArthur today, right? Grace Community Church. We know what's going on with them. The kind of heat they're taking right now. And last I heard, it's getting better. Uh, They're not actually going to arrest him and they're going to let him go to court. and, And I think it's going to work out. But at the end of the day, they're getting some heat. And we should remember our brothers and sisters who suffer. Pray for them. Who knows when they're going to come for us? May we be as bold as they are when it happens. So Paul says, remember. Remember. But now one more statement here. One more. Very simple. Grace be with you. Closing benediction. He finishes the letter the way he started it, right? With a prayer for grace. Chorus, the Greek word means undeserved favor, unearned kindness. And the whole Christian life is grace, right? We just sang it. Grace, grace, God's grace greater than all our sin. That's glorious. We're made right with God by grace. None of us in this room right now deserve to be right with God. None of us in this room right now deserve to go to heaven. And yet all of us who are in Christ are guaranteed it. Guaranteed glory. That's correct. And Paul, again, as I said back in chapter 1, when Paul opened with a wish for grace, he's not talking about justifying grace here. He's not talking about saving grace. The Colossians received that at the moment of their salvation. 
He's praying for God's strengthening, sustaining, sanctifying grace to be with them. The kind of grace that they need to maintain their relationship with the Lord and to grow in grace. And that's the kind of grace all of us need, isn't it? We should be praying that for all of God's people. God would lavish His grace upon them. John MacArthur said, that sums up the message of Colossians. Salvation is by grace through faith in the all-sufficient Christ, not through human works advocated by false teachers. Right? Douglas Moo wrote, their need to continue and grow in their faith in the face of false teaching will be undergirded and stimulated by the continuing work of God's grace in their midst. That's what we need. That's the message of Colossians. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. If you're not in Christ, you have nothing. But if you are in Christ, you have everything. Everything. So brothers and sisters, do not believe the lies of false religion. Do not believe the lies of the cultists. Do not believe the lies of the world. You have all that you need in the sufficient grace of God which is communicated to you through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. What a fitting in. What a message. We have a sufficient Christ. One who saves us to the uttermost, who is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Let's draw near to Him now and thank Him for being such a sufficient Savior. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this journey through Colossians. We're grateful that Christ is sufficient and that we're made sufficient in Him. What a wonderful, wonderful message that is. Or we know our world, to put it in the common vernacular, is going to hell in a handbasket. Corrupt and wicked and devastated. So many problems, but the answer is always the same. The answer for racism and the answer for abortion, the answer for false religion, the answer for suffering, it's all the same. It's the Gospel of Jesus. Christ is enough. And I pray that our hearts would understand that. Even now, I know there are people here who are suffering. People here who are struggling. I pray that that reality would be rooted in their hearts. That Christ is sufficient. That they would have great joy and contentment in this sufficient Christ. So thank You, Lord. Thank You for a sufficient salvation. We look forward to our next journey, whatever book we work through next, and we know that as we do, You're going to be faithful to meet with us and cause us to grow. And for that, we're thankful. To Your glory, we pray all of these things. Amen.